Uh, so we're in the book of Jude, and we want to pick up where we left off, uh, start in verse 14, and we'll go, Lord willing, to the end of the book itself. So um, in terms of practical insight, this is the section that um, really concerns us, unless you're, you're a, a heretic, and then you need to see everything he said before that. So let's read Jude 14. We'll go to the end of the book. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up on the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Okay. So what we have here is essentially three sections um, in this final half of the book of Jude. The first is a final condemnation for the false teachers, the apostates here that are corrupting the church. So we get that in verses 14 to 16. Now, you'll notice here, we've already kind of addressed it some in verse 14. The problem here is that Jude quotes from a book of the Bible or from a book that is not in the Bible, right? And we, we've talked about this. One of the major issues with Jude is what makes it so complicated is how do we interpret this? And there's a number of options. Some have said that if the Bible quotes it, that book it quotes must be in the Bible. Well, there's some problems with that. One, you may remember, Paul quotes from Greek philosophers quite a bit in his writings. He was a well-read Pharisee, which would be expected. Um, you could take even something like the golden rule, do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. That's not original with Jesus from what we can tell. We can trace that to, to centuries before Jesus. Well, does that mean that those other writers are inspired? I, I don't think so. Um, but that would be uh, general wisdom and certainly consistent with the gospel ethic. So too, what do we do with the quotation from the direct quotation of the Assumption of Moses, the Book of Enoch, and the allusion to the Book of Enoch? And we'll see another quote here that we can't find in the New Testament attributed to, to the apostles. So Jude creates a lot of problems. It is my general approach, and I could be wrong. I'll let you know when I get to heaven. I'll, I'll haunt you in your dreams afterwards to let you know. But I suspect that to the, uh, these false teachers, these books are held in high regard. Um, I don't know if you know much about the history of the Apocrypha, which is in the Catholic Bible. For many centuries, the Apocrypha was read by and was used by Christians, not as inspired books, but as helpful insights to understand the Bible. Uh, much in the same way, uh, we don't do this much in Protestant circles, thanks to the Catholic Church. But I would recommend maybe picking up one time and reading a book called the Didache, 
written in the late first century, early second century. Didache, uh, sometimes it's called the teaching of the 12. It's not written by the apostles from what we can tell, but it gives you a good summary of early Christian teaching uh, of practices, mentions the Lord's Supper and baptism and, and all kinds of stuff like that. It's a helpful little book. Uh, well, that book, even though it wasn't inspired, was influential in the early church. No one made it inspired, but it was influential. So too, 1st, 2nd Maccabees was influential. It became the Bible whenever the Protestant Reformation happened. Now, in the original King James Bible, King Jimmy and the people he hired to translate the Bible translated the Apocrypha. It was right there. But it was never considered, they were never, those 14 books were never considered inspired. The Catholic Church came and said, in order for us to defend certain doctrines, we need the Apocrypha. Okay? Um, so that's why the Catholic Church has the Apocrypha. Okay? Saying that a book is useful is not the same as saying a book is divine. So too, if I want to make an argument against the Catholic Church, I could probably pull up a few verses um, to use against them, right? And I wouldn't be saying they're inspired, but if they see it as inspired, maybe I will. we may do this with, say, people who believe in evolution. Maybe you want to quote Darwin, something like that. Uh, or a Dawkins or someone and say, look, even this guy thinks you're wrong, right? Uh, and I do think that's what the uh, Jude, the, uh, the apostle here, is, is doing. But from what we can tell, uh, Jude is quoting Enoch 1.9. Uh, behold, he, this is Enoch 1.9, behold, he will arrive with 10 million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. Now, you'll also notice here that Enoch is described as the seventh from Adam. Well, if you go to Genesis 5 and read the genealogies, as I know we do every night before we go to bed, you'll find that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. However, that phrase is never found in the Bible. It's found in books outside of the Bible, like Enoch, in, in I think, Book of Jubilees and, and some others. So he's clearly leaning in on these traditions, and I think in a critical way, using it against them. Um, in fact, I, I want to point this out in verse 15. He's quoting from one Enoch, uh, or Enoch 1 or Enoch 1.9, to execute judgment on all, all and to convict all the ungodly, meet all their needs. Um, no, it's verse 14, I'm sorry. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. Now, what's striking about that is Jude changes a word. He's quoting from the Greek, but he retranslates one of the words. In Enoch, God sends his holy angels to execute judgment. But who's doing it in Jude? It's the Lord. Kyrios. It's Jesus. It's the same thing that Mark pointed out whenever we, we first started, going all the way back to um, verse 5. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. You're not going to find the name Jesus in, in the Exodus story, are you? But in Jude's theology... And dealing with these false teachers, he wants them to see that Jesus is, is the authority. Jesus is the Savior. And so if you don't listen to Jesus, you're going to listen to yourself. And what comes out is a lot of folly. So Jude wants to say, okay, let's, let's quote some First Enoch here, okay? Let me tell you, it's Jesus who said he's going to come lay the smack down on y'all. And he's equating um, or equating 
um, the watchers and all that sort of stuff uh, from First Enoch that God is going to send judgment down on to the false teachers. Just as God sent judgment upon them in the days of Noah, he will do it to false teachers. It's very strong language. And by the way, it's Jesus who's going to do this. And you can almost wonder what's going on in the background. Is the argument from the false teachers, and see if you've heard something like this, Jesus is a nice guy. You know, Jesus is just a ball of love, right? And my Jesus would never condemn anyone. Oh, really? Let me read you one of these fake books. It's Jesus going to come and lay the smack down, y'all, right? <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I love about Revelation that we just finished today in devotions is it presents a Jesus with a sword and a tattoo, right? I kind of like that picture, right? He's not on a cross. He's on a white horse, armed with an army, right? You know, it's Jesus that comes and the blood's up, up to the bridle, right? It's Jesus that comes to, to, to lay down judgment. And I think that is what he's doing. And notice that Jesus comes to do two things. He's going to come to execute and to convict. Some strong verbs there. Um, also notice in verse 14, this is kind of annoying once you see it. In verses 14 and 15, the word ungodly and the word all are used four times. Um, he refers to them in general as ungodly. He says their deeds are ungodly. They commit sin in ungodly ways and they speak ungodly things. You get the point? What he, remember what he's saying here is that their theology is off, which is evidenced by their um, way, way they live their lives. You fix the theology, you'll fix this. By the way, this is, this is, we've known this throughout history, but for some reason, we humans deny it. We're doing that now in our country, right? You think our country has bad theology? Yeah, yeah. So what we'll do is we'll say, look, we can pursue um, wild, sensual living, and there won't be any consequences. Yeah, but what do we do with all these broken homes and broken kids and messed up people? Oh, well, that's not because of, of this revolution we started. Oh, no, how could it be, right? You know, whenever your happiness trumps the happiness of kids, right? That's probably going to be a problem for the next generation, right? Well, what we've done is, is we've justified ungodliness, uh, and we're surprised that it doesn't work out because our theology is wrong. People protesting right now, and people are protesting in the summer. What's causing that? Theology. Now, we call it politics, but it's theology nonetheless. We've got a false savior. Whether he wears red or blue tie, it's a false savior. So if our guy is crucified, that is, he doesn't win an election, we're going to go, we're going, going to go complain about it. We're going to go cause all kinds of violence and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's theology. And, and then what's going to come out of that? Nonsense. Violence. Destroy businesses, fire, cities on fire, all that sort of stuff. So Jude's point is, look, look, everything about them is ungodly. Maybe that should tell you something about their theology. So, um, but nevertheless, what he is saying in quoting First Enoch is he summarizes what he's been saying in the entire book. Notice he breaks it into two, two ways. One, they're ungodly in their works. It's the argument he's been making in the whole book. Verse four, they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into licentiousness. Verse six, like the angels who do not stay uh, in their proper position, but left their, their dwelling. Verse seven, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Ungodly works there. Verse eight, they defile the flesh. 
Verse 10, they are like unreasoning animals. Verse 11, they walk in the way of Cain. Notice there it's walking, it's, 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 it's what they do. In verse 15, uh, they're ungodly in all of their deeds. Verse 16, they follow after their own uns, uh, sinful lust. All of that is ungodly works. But it isn't just ungodly works he's criticizing, it's ungodly words he's pointing out. Verse four, they deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. Verse 8, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You know, but they they saw it as a meme on Facebook, so it's got to be right. Verse 15, all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Uh, Verse 16, they are grumblers, malcontents, loud mouth boasters. Well, this is consistent with the biblical worldview, isn't it? Look, Look, I can tell you everything I need to know about you by, the, by how you use your tongue, right? Isn't that like James, a major section of James? It's such a small muscle, yet it controls so much of it. What did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. An unredeemed soul will speak unredeemed words. Anyone ever been on social media? You believe me now? It makes you question how many Christians are actually saved, doesn't it? If we spend as much time speaking the glories and the hope we have in Christ as we do this other nonsense, what a difference it would be for our own soul, let alone for, for the benefit of other people. But man, I got to own the libs, so let me just get on here. Own the libs. Nevertheless, um, but in verse 16 and in verse 19, Jude offers a final summary of their character. We've already looked at some of it, at least in passing. Grumblers. Now, that, that reminds me of the Israelites, right? Malcontents. Does anyone have a different word there? Fault finders. Fault finders. I like that. I am so glad we don't have those anymore. Don't you? Recently, someone uh, you know, accused me of some stuff. And I remember saying to this person, I thought, if that is as bad as you can think, I'm doing all right. Right? I mean, look, bitterness will lead to fault finding. Because you need to justify your bitterness. And if you can't justify your bitterness, you'll make it up. And and that's what it does. So if you're grumbling all the time and there's nothing else to grumble about, you'll make it up. You know? And and fault finders. Oh, that, that'll preach there. Fault finders. This, that's good. I like that better malcontent. Malcontent makes you sound British. But fault finders, that I can get with. It's more of a southern slang there. Fault finder. Um, It goes on in verse 16, following their own sinful desires, loud mouth boasters. Glad we don't have those anymore. Glad we don't elect them either. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, I want you to notice here two things when when it comes to this summary. One, he identifies their dissatisfaction with righteousness and with the Savior. They are grumblers and they are fault finders. They are malcontents. They have an attitude of dissatisfaction, discontentment. They're they're miserable people. And for some reason, miserable people attract a lot of people around them. You ever notice that? We get annoyed by positive people, but we're attracted to miserable people. Why do we do that? Well, I know why. It's because we want to justify our own misery, right? (laughs) Uh, But but they're they're dissatisfied with, with God. But at the same time, they are satisfied and content with their own depraved nature. So they follow after their own sinful desires without remorse, with, without repentance. They are loudmouth boasters, you know, um, and they show favoritism for, for their own benefit. Um, so 
So man, what, what, what a summary. Uh, what a summary. So that's a final condemnation for the most part of the false teachers. But in verse 17 to 19, we get a final appeal from Jude. And he's really writing to the reader. So he's been addressing to the reader uh, the people who have snuck in un, un, uh, uh, unrecognized. He, he said, you, you need to see them. You need to deal with it. And this, is, this is what they look like. This is what they're doing. You need to see it for what it really is. But then, he, then he writes to the reader. He says, this is what you, how you should live and how you should respond. Um, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostle Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Jude has one imperative in the entire book. Now think about how odd that is. There is one verb that tells you what to do. There's verbs everywhere, of course, but there's one commandment. One commandment in the entire book. He waits till the end to give it to you. It's remember. That's the commandment. Everything else that follows that look like commandments are participles. But the one imperative, which is, which is the commandment in the, the, the commandment uh, uh, tense in, in Greek, it's here. Remember. And what does he want you to remember? He wants you to remember what the apostles warned you about. But then he quotes the apostles. Let's read and see what the apostles said. They said to you, quote, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, end quote. Where is that in the New Testament? It ain't. That quote is not found in the New Testament. However, it sounds eerily similar to his sister book, 2 Peter 2. In 2 Peter, chapter 3 rather, um, it says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, striking, he uses the word beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior through the apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now notice, the word scoffer, this precise word of scoffer in Jude, is only used twice in the New Testament. Here in Jude, and there in 2 Peter 3. So it is likely that Jude is not quoting from memory, but he's summarizing what Peter wrote. This is why I think Jude actually comes after 2 Peter. Uh, so I think Second Peter is predicting they were coming, and Jude's saying, look, they're here. That's my theory. I'm probably wrong. I have a commentary in my, in my library that says it's opposite, and he can be wrong. So um, one of us is, I guess. So uh, um, he is warning that, that the false teachers are, are here, and uh, they shouldn't be surprised by it, and we shouldn't be surprised by it today. In the last time, there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly lusts. It's amazing how easily we are enslaved by our desires. We also notice there in verse 18, um, or I'm sorry, we read, read verse 18. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip all that. Um, in verse 19, we get the very last description of, Jew, of, of the false teachers. They cause divisions, they're worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Now, I think, notice it's another three. He loves his threes. But I think it's written in backwards order. Because what he's done is he's emphasized their lack of godliness 
in order to demonstrate their lack of the Spirit. Notice what he says there in verse 19. They cause divisions. So what he says is, okay, next business meeting, next fellowship dinner, uh, whatever. I want you to get out a pad and paper and say, okay, who's causing all the problems right now? Who's complaining about everything? Who's never happy? Who is, who is causing all these divisions? I want you to write them down. Let me tell you, sin always divides. Where there is division, there is sin. It's as simple as that. So if you are divided from someone, if you've broken off from someone, it's because of sin. This is what, you married couples need to grasp this. People do not fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. But we'll blame it on our emotions. We'll blame it on what they did. We'll blame it on this or that. Where there is division, there is sin. Sin will always divide. Sin will always push people away because sin never serves. Sin never loves. You don't sin for their benefit. You sin for yours, right? And if you've got two people who are living for their own benefit, you've still got two people. You will not have a one people. Sin will always divide. You want to know why churches split? Because they don't deal with the sin. You want to know why, why people uh, complain and holler and all this sort of stuff? They don't deal with sin. Sin divides, grace heals. Throughout the entirety of the Bible, right, that is as simple of a message of the Bible you're going to get. Where there is sin, there's division. Can I prove it to you? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve hanging out. They're, they're having a dinner date, right? A little snake comes up and says a few lies. All of a sudden, date ruined. Why? They realize that they, are, that, that, they, that they get the feeling of shame and guilt. And what do they do? They separate and they hide from each other. Consistently throughout the Bible is what you're going to get. Whenever is it, not Onan, who's the guy in Joshua that, that steals? Achan. Achan, there you go. I had Onan, and that, that's, that's a different story. Uh, Achan, why does he hide the goat and the treasure? Right? It's what sin does. Sin divides. Sin never heals. When the disciples, particularly the brothers, are one on, want to be on Jesus' right, the other wants to be on Jesus' left in the kingdom. How do the other disciples respond? Not with tolerance, openness, and peace, but more division. This is, this, look at history. Where there is sin, when there is unrepented, unreconciled conflict, there will be division. So he says, here's a simple practice of what I want you to do is you go and you say, who's stirring the problems? Not who's causing them. They probably are the cause. But who's stirring it? Who's texting everyone late at night? Who's spreading all the gossip? Who's the loudest in the business meeting? Who complains to the pastor all the time about everything? Who are these people? This is who I'm talking about. They cause divisions. They cause divisions. And then he also notes there, 19, there are worldly people. Now think about it. If you're worldly, you're not godly. And if you're worldly, you're going to get divisions. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the more worldly society becomes, the more post-Christian we become as a society, are we getting more unified as a nation or less unified as a nation? Did anyone turn on TV today? You went check your Instagram account, Twitter account. I don't know. Do they do this on the, on the uh, Tic Tacs? I don't know. But have you, have you kept up with anything? Are we more united or more divided? Dude, what both parties do when they get in power, we believe in unity. Yeah, but Mr. So-and-so, congressperson, president, governor, whatever, 
Two months ago, you called us all backwards rednecks and that we're evil. Do you think we forgot about that? Mr. President, Senator, Congressman, uh, uh, you want unity? You remember two months ago, you, you, you called us a bunch of left-wing hippies that want to burn the system down. We're not good for nothing. And we need to go back to our parents' basement. You remember those comments? It's amazing, isn't it? We spent an entire campaign dividing the country so that we can claim we're going to bring everyone back together. And we keep up with this stuff. We tolerate this nonsense. And we're surprised it doesn't work out. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, now that I've disowned half the nation, well, they're going to love me when I get inaugurated. <laughs> just, just, I'll be sworn in and everyone will forget about it. And that's not the way it works anymore. Um, so if you're worldly, thus not godly, you will, among other things, cause divisions. Worldliness is ungodliness. And then you see the root of it, devoid of the spirits. That's the root, isn't it? If you deny Jesus as your Lord and Master, you do not have the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit will restrain. It will help you with self-control, the fruits of the Spirit. It will give you the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and the love. I remember reading something about that in, I think it was in People's Digest or something. But, but you'll have that. Why? But if you're void of the Spirit, you're going to be worldly, ungodly, and you're going to cause divisions. But if you have the Spirit's unity, Love, all that sort of stuff. So Jude gets at the heart of it here. What is he saying? These false teachers are lost and you've given them authority. That's a problem. You've given them influence. That's a problem. The issue is they deny the gospel. And when the gospel is not the center of a local congregation, what you get is a mess. I'm afraid too many of our churches are doing that right now. Right now, that's a problem. Well, let's look at this final word. Look, final condemnation, final appeal, final word. Uh, verses 20 to 25. I suspect this is everyone's favorite part, um, at least 24 and 25. Verse 20 says, but you, beloved, notice the contrast. He does that a lot here at the end. Uh, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, so... The main verb um, here is to keep, right? Now, remember, the, the commandment is to remember. Remember what, the, what the, pro, the apostle said, and now keep. When you remember, you will keep, right? So, so that, that's the idea. Remember is, is, is the uh, uh, imperative, but these other words, are, are either verbs or participles, are, are points underneath that. So you need to keep. What do you need to keep? Well, keep yourself in the love of God. Oh, Okay. What does that mean, <laughs> right? It sounds spiritual. What does it really mean? He tells you three things to do in this verse. First of all, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Maybe I'm wrong, but one word sticks out to me, and that is discipleship. If you will grow as a disciple, you will build yourself up in the holy faith. So you need to ask yourself, over 2020, uh, as awful as a, as a year as it was, um, did you grow in your faith? Think about it. You and I spent more time at home over the last nine months. Did we waste the opportunities we had to grow in our faith? We had access to more material online and in person when it comes to the gospel than we've ever had before. Did we take advantage of it? Are we building ourselves up in the faith? Are we growing as a disciple? 
Are we robbing ourselves of fellowship and worship and scripture and prayer and meditation and fasting and all of this sort of stuff? Are we building ourselves up in the holy faith? To me, that is simple discipleship. If you want to keep uh, and remember, build yourself up. Secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, as a youth minister, I think I've told you this story before. Um, our pastor was out. It was a Wednesday night, and, and so I took the youth and then the adults. Someone else taught them. Um, but we, we did a unified, basically, prayer request thing. you know. And because the pastor was out, they asked me to do it. I was the only other person on staff. So, so I did it, and I made a joke. It didn't go over too well with one person in particular. I did an impression of Benny Hinn. Okay? And this person, they, uh, I had baptized his sons, first person ever baptized, like personally baptized. And his, well, this is a lot, so I won't say his name. But, um, and I got to know the family really well. So his two sons were in the youth group, really good kids. And uh, the dad came up and said, you should not mock a man of God like Benny Hinn. I said, I didn't mock a man of God. I mocked Benny Hinn. Right? <laughs> you know, that probably was not the answer that, that he wanted from me. Now remember, I'm, I'm 20, 21, ignorant, okay? Did you hear that, guys? Ignorant at that age. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> all, all women now. Um, but uh, uh, by the way, we're requiring all deacons when they pray during their devotion on Sunday mornings to end the prayer with a women. Is that okay? A <laughs> gender non-binary unspecified word that has not been approved by the woke of America. You're dismissed, right? <laughs> uh, but, but as, as, you know, I, I said, well, I didn't. He goes, well, well, you know, he went on and, and we, we kept talking about charismatic stuff. And, and he says, well, the Bible says we ought to pray in tongues. I'm like, where? And the church held to that. That was their position, not my position. You can disagree with me, and, and we can both be wrong. It was not my position. I said, I just can't find it in the Bible. He said, yeah, Jude 21. Uh, Jude 20, rather. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, does it say that means tongues? It could mean that. Let's just, just be generous. It could mean that. But is that what Jude says? No. This is an example of reading our preconceived theology into the text. We do it all the time. To pray in the Spirit, this is, this is what I think we need to see here. Remember what he just said in verse 19. They are devoid of the spirits. Then we are told to build ourselves up in the faith. Faith is the center of the gospel. You must repent and believe, faith. And now you must pray in the Spirit. I think the key issue here is the center of the gospel that you have 